Welcome back to Our Voices. This week, Aaron White and I were joined by David Adler, a former foreign policy advisor to Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign and the policy director of the Democracy in Europe movement, DM25. Most recently, Adler has been serving as the general coordinator of the newly launched Progressive International, mobilising left-wing activists and organisations from around the world to join in a movement that champions a new vision for an explicitly post-capitalist society. We began this interview by asking David about this recent work, about what inspired the new Progressive International, and how it feeds off previous historical attempts to build and coordinate progressive movements at the international level. The legacy of this project is incredibly long and takes such inspiration and attempts both to learn from the best bits of past efforts at international organizing and learn from the failures of past organizing. You know, it's no surprise to, to you or your listeners uh, to hear that the first, second, third, third and a half, fourth, et cetera, past internationals have really struggled to do this work because it's extremely challenging to put those pieces together and to build an internationalism that can be equally responsive to the needs and priorities and politics of these different constituent members, while also keeping that same broad coalition focused on the task at hand. In this particular case, beating the twin forces of far-right fundamentalism and free market fundamentalism uh, and replacing them with a new kind of workers' uh, internationalism. So, of course, that's the general project. And I think that you've pointed to the timeline for its development, uh, which I think really does point our attention to two very different moments in time. December 2018, when we first wrote this open letter, this open call to all progressive forces to come and join that common front, this was the peak of a certain anxiety around a resurgent far-right fascism, we might even call it. And then, of course, it looked a lot like, as I said before, we had these two different faces. You had the hyper-globalized liberalism of the Davos man, and you also had the far-right fascism of the Trumps, Bolsonaro's, Duterte's, uh, who was willing to weaponize those markets to advance an ethno-nationalist position, etc. Now, what's interesting is that in those two years, the daylight between these two faces these two different sides of the coin as we once understood them, has really ceased to exist. I mean, I think it's a really interesting moment to think that in December 2018, we uh, had written this, this letter, but if you look at Trump's arrival at Davos, for example, that amazing speech he gave uh, in Switzerland, where he's you know, sitting in front of all these suits who are supposed to be the great kind of carriers of a certain human-faced globalization, you know, where he's things were supposed to go together, the democracy, the growth, the liberalization was supposed to go together with a raft of social and political rights. And then there's this watershed moment where you have Trump kind of marching into the halls of Davos and everyone kind of applauding him, of course, maybe in hushed tones talking about why he's such a bad man. In the past two years, we could talk about, okay, the fascists over here, the Davos sets over there. But now all these different crises, all these different um, sort of reactionary forces have really welded together and have created this kind of super force that is really putting rubber to road on, the, on the, the argument made many times in the past that democracy and capitalism are truly incompatible. And that when push came to shove, someone like Jamie Dimon or 
just Wall Street more broadly was going to side with those forces of reaction. So to bring it back to your original question, you know, we had this moment of ringing the alarm two years ago. But once you fast forward, especially with the onset of the pandemic, it really becomes a much clearer picture where uh, there, th those bastions of liberal sentiment are no longer holding up an international system and it's crumbling uh, everywhere that we see it. So that was the kind of impetus to, to get going on this, to really move from an open letter and a lot of goodwill that was built up to actually building this institution, building this new international that could be powerful enough to confront what now looks to be this kind of multi-headed hydra, but one sort of opposition, which is a kind of reactionary capital that is increasingly powerful everywhere. The Progressive International obviously held its inaugural summit a couple of weeks ago, which managed to draw together some of those powerful intellectuals, progressive intellectuals from all over the world and activists uh, from all over the world. I wondered if you sense now when you contact those people an increased urgency, a desperation, but also an enthusiasm to join the Progressive International, a platform that they haven't really had the opportunity to kind of exercise their international solidarity before in this way. And I also wanted to kind of juxtapose that with the relationship you have with politicians. Because as I mentioned before, you started this movement in conjunction with the Sanders Institute, etc. But when you did that summit a couple of weeks ago, it was conspicuous that you had a lot of incredible speakers there, but not necessarily some of the leading figures of the progressive movement, say in the US, in terms of politicians. Um, so I wondered if, if you've had a strong reaction from activists, from academics, uh, from the protest movement that's going around the world, from social movements, enthusiastically, but then how that maybe juxtaposes with the relationship that politicians have with your movement. I think that we live in this fascinating moment where we've never had more of a mass recognition that certain of our crises, all of our crises are, are really planetary in scale, uh, whether it's the Fridays for Future movement, whether it's this pandemic, which just ripped, ripped the, the, the sort of nasty face off of the nationalist impulse to say, this is just a rotten ideology that's not going to even keep us safe in our own homes, in our own communities. Or indeed, whether it's the kind of economic crisis uh, of interdependence that, that is every day becomes clear as we see these supply chains that actually do require us to understand our relationship to workers in Brazil or workers in Southern India. So we have this mass recognition uh, that internationalism is necessary. And we just have so little infrastructure for coordinating international campaigns, actions, frameworks. Um, it's just a remarkable thing if you think about just not even the new kind of workers internationalism we're talking about. But in the course of this pandemic, the just absence of multilateral bodies. I mean, the destruction of the World Health Organization. You recall this amazing moment when Trump announced the US was leaving WHO and what happened? Nothing happened. It was like a fart in the news cycle. And then everyone moved on and we never talked about, we didn't talk about it again. The United Nations was essentially a, a disabled body. I'm not praising them. I'm just saying even the annals, even the institutions we already have for this kind of tepid, lukewarm multilateralism aren't able to function. Um, definitely not with the speed, scale, intensity, and representativeness that we would want them to. So I think that to your point, Freddie, I think there is a lot of excitement about the prospect of building an institution that could do the work that these you know, great vaunted institutions built in the mid-century are no longer fit for purpose to be able to do. That's the good news. I think you're right to point that as attention um, uh, in wh who and how 
people are speaking on behalf of that internationalism. Um, and, you know, on that note, I think I also feel quite hopeful because if the, if the, if the launch of our progressive international involved a lot of voices of high profile intellectuals, high profile political actors, writers, thinkers, and artists, it's exciting to see the initiative really grow out to be much more responsive to its members, member organizations being social movements, being big political parties, being trade unions, local tenants organization, building out that coalition of or publications, right? Building out that, that coalition of all these different institutions that want to come on board um, is really, uh, is going to be really important. You raised something that I've been really fascinating about the potential reticence of a certain, of, of political representatives, let's just say sitting electoral representatives to join something like uh, a new international. Um, and I think part of that this has to do with kind of legal strictures. There is a concern about where things are violating regulations or where they're, you know, what responsibilities they have vis-a-vis -vis their surgeries in the UK or their constituencies in the United States. Um, but I think it speaks to a broader crisis, just a crisis of representativeness. I mean, representation is just such a scarce resource um, because all the institutions that formerly were able to do that kind of representation, uh, whether it's trade unions or, or your local just uh, your local club, you know, there was a president of your neighborhood association, those things have been eviscerated. Um, and we end up with these kinds of free-floating intellectuals, people who, who speak with movements, but not necessarily on behalf of movements. And so I think when it comes to electoral representatives, that's definitely a rep something we have to appreciate, their, their capacity to be accountable to, answerable to a, 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 an actually existing constituency. It also sets certain kinds of constraints about how that constituency moves. All this to say that the process, you know, you're right to suggest, hey, look, there was a relative paucity of sitting representatives at this summit, but it's going to take time. It's going to take time for us to build a coalition where people who do represent those constituencies don't just say, yeah, I'd love to join you guys. So I'm going to join you for my name and my name alone. But where the PI can be engaging with those constituencies, deepening that internationalism so it really does have a close relationship to workers in their communities, peoples around the world. So we're bringing on those representatives and representative institutions who are able to say with full confidence, we speak on behalf of this constituency when we say X or Y, when we advocate a or B, when we say that we support actions on this day or that day. So I think it's just a, it's a long-term project and we have to be a bit patient as we try to you know, build the legitimacy and the strength that would encourage representatives to, to be a part of that coalition. Great. I'm wondering if you kind of expand on what, how you view that long-term project, what, what the vision is for the Progressive International. Um, I know that you've launched now this wire service where you've made um, we have all these different connections in the media, open democracy is one of them. And you have some blueprints where you lay out some policy proposals. Wondering kind of how do you see this developing kind of in, in the next couple of years, ideally? Yeah, so you've, you mentioned the, the, the main pillars of work that we have already. One of them is our movement pillar. What's really about building a network of activists to do campaigns and actions that can match the scale of crises to the scale of the activism and actually get, you know, build the kinds of, transnational networks that are gonna be necessary to do things like address climate change on the one hand or international rent strikes or take on major transnational corporations. Another is this blueprint pillar, which is about building this policy vision, taking ideas seriously, knowing that a movement must be guided by 
a certain kinds of idea, shared vision of the future. And the last one you mentioned is our wire service, which is fundamentally about building a more internationalist political culture where we're transcending linguistic barriers that used to actually prevent people from just knowing what's happening in Armenia, knowing what's happening in mainland China, knowing what's happening in the hinterlands of Argentina, and can get those stories out and across the network through our partnered publications. Each one of those is a thesis on internationalism. Each one of those pillars is an idea about what it would mean to be an internationalist. I think people, you know, internationalism for most people feels like a sentiment, a sympathy, a consciousness. Our project is really about building the infrastructure for internationalism. It's to say that, that sympathy, that sentiment cannot exist if there is not an institution, a scaffolding, some kind of institution that can actually allow it to thrive and become more concrete, more actionable. Um, so each of those pillars is one way in which that could become actionable can become actionable by saying on October the 15th, we'll be marching in Trafalgar Square at the same time as others will be marching in Zuccotti Park and indeed others at Jantar Mantar in Delhi, right? It's another thing to say internationalism is about sharing the ideas and the construction of a shared vision so that we all know kind of where we're going and are, we're linked by that strength of, um, of ideology, I mean, of, of, uh, of a powerful idea that's going to carry us to the future. And another is about just understanding each other on a basic level what's happening in your community. I need to know that to feel close to you. But it obviously doesn't stop there. So I think the vision for the PI is to be continuing to, for lack of a better word, innovate, attempt to put on the table certain theses, you might even say hypotheses of what internationalism is. One of them, for example, is building out our art department or internationalist art department, because we know that taking these things seriously, um, art and culture and the production of whether it's from, from memes all the way to beautiful videos that can really resonate emotionally is going to be so essential to the sex, success of those ideas that we're developing in the blueprint pillar or to the ability for those campaigns and actions to reach a large audience. So I just think, you know, we've built some decent tools that we need to grow, solidify, deep institutionalize. But from there, it's all about building more and more useful tools because the Progressive International is not a movement. It is uh, infrastructure that can be useful to movements. It's about supporting, connecting, coordinating, amplifying actually existing movements, um, rather than trying to speak in the, flippantly in all of their name, um, because it's just not going to be possible. And I think if, to go back to an earlier point about what we might have learned from the World Social Forum, this tremendous exercise in bottom-up multilateralism, it's that if we're you know, trying to build that kind of consensus across the coalition, it's probably just not, is going to hamstring our ability to deliver on this notion of internationalism uh, or this notion of solidarity as an action rather than a sentiment. And building on that, I'm interested for those of people who are listening to this podcast who might have been following your work in previous years with the Democracy in Europe movements, uh, DM25, which obviously ran candidates in the European elections a couple of years ago, has been running a really fascinating experiment in horizontalism in the way in which people participate in the voting process to build the pillars, the policy pillars of your movement. I wondered how that project has influenced the work that you're doing now with the Progressive International and how you see those structures uh, aligning. Do you see the Progressive International turning into that sort of broad-based conversational almost like voting structure that you have with dm25 or do you see this as a separate project that you've learned lessons from from dm and you want to approach it slightly differently or i'm just interested to get your opinion on that these are fundamentally different projects 
And Democracy in Europe, I mean, DiEM25 is a, is a, as it says, a, it's a democratic movement. It's really about um, building this transnational movement that can stretch across to all corners of the continent um, as the only potential uh, route to reclaiming and transforming uh, the European Union. Progressive International, you know, it's already ambitious enough to say that we're going to be building some of this infrastructure to support those movements. I think it uh, would be preposterous for us to say that at some point we're going to have uh, such a rich uh, sort of electoral uh, voting system. You know, we have such a heterogeneous coalition between really small movements and parties to giants, hugely representative, vast and diverse social movements, and putting those together in a way that can be configured or reconfigured according to, you know, the appropriate measure of political power and influence is just not feasible. We just need to build a vehicle that's just more fit for purpose, is able to deliver on that promise and be fundamentally useful to the organizational members. I think that from my perspective, there is one fundamental thing that I take from my experience uh, working as the policy director uh, for DiEM25 in that contest for uh, European Parliament, which is that in that role, I was uh, building out Europe's first transnational policy manifesto ahead of those European elections. European elections almost never feature real substantive policy ideas. It's really just about, you know, you throw your list out there, maybe it intersects with the date for your municipal or, or regional or national elections. You hope people turn out and they turn out basically on the basis of loyalty, not on the basis of a substantive vision, a substantive program for the future of the European Union. Um, and I had this tremendous experience working with the Poles and the Portuguese and the Greeks and the Germans and the French to, and, and parties and representatives and policy advisors in those contexts to try to see how could we imbricate uh, the various priorities, policy perspectives into one vision, into one document. Um, and I think that that experience was powerful both in terms of crafting a vision, actually setting out what I would stand by as one of the best, most developed, most powerful expressions uh, of hope and socialist vision for the future of the European Union. Uh, but also I saw the ways in which that construction of a shared vision bound together a coalition that was otherwise going to be seeing its coalition partners as a kind of competitor or at odds uh, in terms of that policy program. And just you know, that understanding that the success or failure of international projects, whether it's DM25 or indeed in terms of the Progressive International, hinges on the participation of its constituent members in the construction of that vision of the future. So that everyone's priorities are on the page, so that everyone feels like they are represented by the final output of that vision statement. And that's just a huge lift for a coalition as diverse ideologically, geographically, as the Progressive Internationals. But I think it's a very important medium-term goal to say we want to rely on the creativity and ideas across that planetary coalition to create a vision that everyone stands behind, that can really belong to that coalition in its entirety. So, you know, I think these, take, these things take longer or shorter in terms of how, how that shared vision gets constructed. But I think the lesson from DiEM25 is it is indeed possible to construct uh, that vision of the future, relying on thousands of members from different parties, different movements across Europe, 
um, to create something that is just truly greater than some of its parts in terms of its promise, its hope, its vision of, of what comes next. So I'm speaking to you now from, from New York, from, uh, from the United States, where we're facing a impending crisis uh, in the midst of a crisis and then potentially a civil war. Who knows, who knows what else is possible? Um, I know that you yourself are also, you're from California. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering how, how, how do you view the U.S. right now from your more kind of international perspective with a little bit of distance? And what do you think the effects of this election will be kind of in the international arena? For example, do you see Biden's agenda as particularly divergent from that of Trump or those of Democrats over the past 40 years? The, the damage that would be done by another four years of Donald Trump uh, in office is just incalculable. It's incalculable for one obvious reason, which is that we're already in the midst of this sixth extinction and, and four more years are just not years that we can afford to waste. And we know that in the great prisoner, you know, global prisoner's dilemma of climate negotiations, to have a defector as large as the United States would have rippling consequences down the line where you know, other defectors would feel shameless and have felt shameless in the past four years in terms of ignoring their Paris obligations or just completely ignoring the concept of decarbonization in general. So on that alone, we're looking at just unbelievable loss of life and suffering as a result of four more years uh, of negligence on the climate question. But I think as an internationalist, uh, and this goes back to the core of the notion that this election is indeed exceptional for tragic reasons, for reasons that are unjust, but it is indeed exceptional, which is, you know, climate's not the only prisoner's dilemma here. You know, Trump has cozied up to people who we now understand to be just uniquely uh, capable of, of anti-social violence and pro-capital theft from the poor in order to enrich their crony friends. I feel like the destruction of the international space, not the, not the international order, of course, I have a huge critique of that, but the kind of international space is already such a dark and scary place. The pollution of that precious international space by four more years of this, the inability to reactivate it um, in order to renovate and create more possibilities from this particular crisis. I mean, that is just foreclosing on so many of the hopes and dreams of you know, our generation of young people um, that it's kind of difficult to calculate. So in that sense, there's just many worlds of difference between these two potential candidates, as severe and withering as my critique would be about the policy offering put by someone like Joe Biden, who I think is quite keen to revive a certain Cold Warism, uh, with you know, while also speaking the language of ending endless war, is happy to revive certain tropes about you know China bad for one, but also this question of the what is the free world and what is the summit of democracies. I think that's deeply problematic for any decent internationalist, but it's still a world away from what I take to be a quite apocalyptic prospect that lies on that second time horizon um, of a potential Trump victory. Cornel West, who, who spoke at the Progressive International Summit a couple of weeks ago, uh, likes to speak about the tightrope, the progressive tightrope in the United States, um, that the, the popular movement, the Sanders movement, which had so many millions of young people coming out and supporting it, are, are walking at the moment, which is, you know, that, that, that forming that anti-fascist coalition against a second term to get Trump out of the White House, but also... Um, at the same time, understanding and being realistic about 
Biden and what a Biden presidency would look like, as you've just outlined. In that sense, do you think that the Progressive International is uniquely placed to appeal to millions of disenfranchised young people across the United States that there is a, a brighter future? There are institutions like the Progressive International organizations that they can get involved in to express their support for progressive movements across the world. And how would you plan on sort of accessing that vast uh, progressive uh, movement, which, which we know is there because of the popularity of the Sanders campaign? I think that, uh, you know, this, this gets a bit personal for me because, uh, as you mentioned, I am, I am from, from Los Angeles originally, and I, I have a lot of pent-up frustration with the silo uh, of American politics. I mean, the, 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 you, that, remember that famous Washington Post front cover where every single story on, a, on the entirety of A1 was just Trump, 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 Trump. And there was this sense in which Trump's election people just turned off their imaginations internationally and just were so consumed by the crisis in front of them. Uh, and in my more cynical moments, I think it was kind of an excuse for a lot of Americans who simply didn't want to give a fuck about the rest of the world to um, say, oh, you know what, it's actually just enough for me to be a liberal living in Brooklyn. It's actually just enough for my existence is resistance and I don't actually have to care about the rest of the world. So I think that there is something uh, to gra really grappling with how to, to break down that silo and create a more internationalist political culture in the United States is fundamental. I just think that, you know, there is this assumption that what happens in the U.S. is going to echo around the world and no one has to lift a finger for solidarity, right? And because the U.S. remains so powerful in its soft mechanisms for um, sort of having its, its crises feel global, to having its stars, Hollywood stars, be globally recognizable. That, that sense is a real barrier to this kind of internationalism of equals. So I think that's a big challenge. There's a lot of kind of rewiring of the whole culture that needs to happen there, where the impulse of solidarity that's so natural and comes so easily in a place like Latin America, where there's a clear recognition, like unless we are doing this across borders, uh, you know, unless we are banding together, uh, we're not going to stand a chance against these broader imperial powers that insist on coming into our countries and overthrowing our leftist leaders. So in a sense, you know, there, I think there is uh, a huge challenge and a huge opportunity. The challenge is the one that I mentioned before, which is to, we just have a major barrier to building an internationalist political environment in the United States. Um, you know, as much as people say, oh, yeah, I know about, you know, I, the classic case would be the fact that when everything was kicking off in the UK, it was very common for Americans to talk about themselves as internationalists, and they literally just meant that they knew it was happening in London. Like there was a real dire constraint on people's internationalist imagination in the United States. That's, that's a challenge we have to grapple with, and my hope is that the Progressive International can be just a very welcoming environment to say, okay, this is a, this is a sympathy that you know you have lurking around. Here are these ways that you can enter into these fights, enter into these struggles. Um, raise your voice for others in other parts of the world. So that feels like the challenge that we would hope to address. And the opportunity is just that I think that there is this emergent solidaristic imagination among especially young people who just, who do come more naturally to this, whether it's because of digital technologies or whether it's indeed because of this climate crisis, as we talked about before, I do think that young people are just much quicker to say, yeah, of course, you know, these national boundaries cannot be the boundaries of our political consciousness and political culture. And there's a lot to build on there. So I think Cornell's right to speak of this tightrope uh, that young progressives are, are 
or walking along. Um, but I think it's at a slightly sort of orthogonal angle um, to the international question. Perhaps the way that they, the, the point at which they meet is that young people in the United States can begin to look around the world and say, this has happened before. This is happening now in other parts of the world. We are deeply unexceptional. We have a lot to learn from our colleagues, friends, and comrades in other countries who've confronted very similar situations, imminent coups, the threats of military violence, um, disappearance of protesters from the street. And maybe we can learn a thing or two from them. And uh, conversely, maybe uh, as we've tried to facilitate, for example, through our work with the Sunrise Movement, other parts of the world can learn a lot from the digital organizing methods, from a lot of the exciting technologies of left politics that are emerging um, across the Anglo world, really, to get serious about moving progressive politics forward at the grassroots level and into power. I'm conscious that we are, we're facing the imminent countdown of the Zoom clock. Um, but I thought, uh, just to end, I'd ask you for, for people listening who are eager to find out about the future of the Progressive International, is there anything to look forward to? Any, any dates to keep in mind? Any, any, you know, what would you tell people now? Visit the website. I would say visit the website for sure. There are you know, rolling campaigns around different issues around the world. So for example, we talk about this slow motion coup in Ecuador, which is really going nowhere. We have elections coming up in uh, early 2021, and that's something that we're paying a lot of attention to because of the sort of longstanding erosion of democracy at the hands of both the Moreno government and the IMF. Similarly, the Bolivian elections are coming up on the 18th of October, and uh, we'll be speaking about a potential PI delegation to go down and do electoral observation. It's a critical juncture in democracy, not only in Bolivia, but across Latin America. And then we've got a very big, very global day of action coming soon. I'm bound not to say too much about it, but it's going to be uh, an exciting moment for flexing this planetary power that we've been trying to build to you know, have all the members of this coalition, individual members, the unions, the parties, the organizations that are already affiliated with us, you know, speaking the same language, taking on the same enemy, and reclaiming power for really for workers um, around the world. So I think it's uh, there's a lot of exciting stuff in the pipeline, and you know I make myself available in my capacity as general coordinator to have conversations with prospective members or people who are interested, because I think that we are at a very very exciting moment in our organizational trajectory, really building piece by piece, brick by brick, member by member, this new international front. Thank you for listening to this Our Voices podcast from Open Democracy. If you enjoyed this podcast and would encourage others to listen, head to iTunes, subscribe and leave us a review. Open Democracy is an independent global media platform that is only possible because of your kind donations. To find out more or to make a donation, head to opendemocracy.net.